forerunner of Christ's life and ministry, John the Baptist. He was the promised prophet who would come and prepare the way uh, for God's people to receive their Messiah. And so I just invite you to follow along with me, Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. For I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Not exactly the kind of uh, reception the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were expecting. Uh, But then again, it's the one that they, they were meant to receive because John came as the last of the old covenant prophets. He, he is the culmination of a long line of faithful men, including preachers like Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah. And they were primarily called, though they certainly looked forward in time and made predictions of God's promises. Their primary role in being prophets was to call out the people of God for their sin and tell them that they needed to repent to God, especially the leadership of God's people who set the precedent for uh, the rest of the nation. John comes, therefore, according to the call of God, proclaiming the word of God so that the people of God might be mindful of their sin and repent. And again, this ministry is a fulfillment of God's promises to send this forerunner to ready the people, to make them prepared in mind and heart for the coming of their Savior, the Messiah. And notice what John is doing. He is baptizing people for the repentance of their sins. This is why he is known as John the Baptist. And not as my uh, friend R.C. Sproul would say, John the Presbyterian. He is baptizing people for the repentance of sins. Now, for many of us, that, that, that may not, uh, that we may not get why this is so important. Uh, because baptism, although a different baptism from what John is doing here, is familiar to us, but it would have been incredibly revolutionary for the Jews of John's day. Because outwardly, they already believed they were the covenant people of God. Uh, The men were circumcised and therefore had the sign of the covenant. They were Israel, God's people, outwardly. But now John is coming and he is saying, you cannot depend on an outward sign of covenant faithfulness from God unless you yourselves believe and trust in him. Outwardly you may be Israel, but inwardly you may be going to hell. John says circumcision is not enough. Your ethnic identity is not enough. You must believe God and you must live a life that is in keeping with that belief. He tells them, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
He says, he says, look, just because you're the sons of Abraham doesn't mean that you have a privileged status with God like you think it does. If he wants children of Abraham, he can turn his rocks into children. He says, you must believe and not depend just on your ethnic identity. Jewishness was not a guarantee of eternal salvation. In fact, John says, because of the sins of Israel, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. That is to say, judgment is already hanging over the covenant people of God. And if they want to escape it, they will embrace the coming Messiah who has come to establish the kingdom of God. And the visible way to show that you are ready to embrace that Messiah, that you are trusting in the promises of God, that you know because of your own sin you need a Savior, is to publicly confess that sin through this baptism of repentance. This is why John shocked so many of the religious leaders, but so many of the everyday people were flying out to him in order to be saved. They were ready for the Messiah. They knew the depth of their need and their sin, and they knew we need a Savior. We need God's mercy. We don't want to experience his judgment. It becomes all the more shocking for John then when Messiah himself comes and says, you need to baptize me. Jesus shows up and says, you need to baptize me. And here we begin to see how Jesus is the one who stood in our place, the one who is the perfect Savior for his people. The first thing that we see is this. Jesus is the righteous substitute. Jesus is the righteous substitute. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus answered to him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Now you can imagine why John is so surprised. He just said, Messiah is coming. The one who is coming is greater than I. I'm not even worthy to carry the man's sandals. And yet now he comes and he says, I need, you need to baptize me, John. And John doesn't get it. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm baptizing people who are lesser than me. I am baptizing people who are in need of repentance, who need the mercy of God. I have been called out especially by God for this task. That therefore, spiritually speaking, I am at the head of the line and I'm calling people to follow after me. You're before me. I need to be baptized by you. What's, what's going on? And Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand, John. You have to baptize me now because it is going to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does that mean? I mean, that's, that's kind of cryptic, isn't it? I mean, you, you would expect maybe something a, a little fuller. What, 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 is, what is Jesus meaning when he says it's going to fulfill all righteousness by being baptized by John? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that it doesn't imply that Jesus needs to be baptized because he has something to repent of. I mean, you read through the Gospels. And you never see Jesus repenting. You never see him saying, oh, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Uh, forgive me, I sinned against you. you. You never see that at all because he has nothing to be forgiven of. He is morally perfect. He never makes a bad decision. Even when he gets angry, it is a righteous indignation. He should be angry at what he sees taking place. And therefore, he does not sin. In fact, Jesus goes even beyond that. And he's not just, he doesn't just have nothing to uh, be forgiven of, he goes around telling other people, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And again, this is why the religious leaders, they get all bent out of shape and say, who are you to say that? Only God can say that. He's God in the flesh. He alone is perfect in righteousness and in holiness and therefore has the right to tell others their sins are forgiven. 
Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness, I believe, in this. He is fulfilling the plans and purposes of God his Father. That's the first thing. Because what we see is Jesus saying over and over and over again throughout the Gospels that he has come to do the will of his Father. And the will of his Father is that Jesus so identify with his people that he will eventually die for them. Therefore, I think the point that is, that is happening here, the reason why it is for righteousness sake that he is being baptized is not because he needs, to, he needs to repent, but because his people do. His people are sinful and they need a savior. Jesus serves as their savior to bring them to God and experience forgiveness of sins by being their substitute. Jesus stands in their place, in the place of his people. He receives what they deserve from God and gives them what they can never earn. That is to say, he receives their judgment and he gives them righteousness that they might stand before God. Paul puts this very succinctly in 2 Corinthians 5.21, a very famous verse that we're actually going to sing later in the service. For our sake. God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In going and being baptized, Jesus says, I am paving a way, a way of salvation, not because I need it, but because you do. You need it, and I am going to identify you. And that identification begins right at the very beginning of my ministry, as I identify with those who need to repent of their sins. John consents to baptize Jesus, and when he does, he not only comes to better understand that Jesus is the righteous substitute, he also comes to see that Jesus is the beloved Son. This is the second thing that we see about Jesus being our perfect Savior. He is the beloved Son. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. During the course of the world, many important people have an experience and inauguration to their position of power. It happens all the time. In fact, I just read uh, the other day about the inauguration of Queen Elizabeth II when she was crowned Queen of England in 1953. Apparently, it was quite an elaborate affair of pomp and circumstance. But one of the most amazing things, just in terms of kind of zeroing in on one detail that should help to serve as an example of just how uh, glorious of an event this was meant to be, the Queen's dress alone had a train that was... 36 feet long, made completely of velvet. It was so heavy, it took six maids of honor to carry it behind her so that she could walk up to the throne. Now, that's some serious pomp and circumstance, you know what I'm saying? Uh, It was meant to be an amazing and important event, and it was signaled in every way by even what she was wearing. In our own country, when a new president is inaugurated, what do they do? First of all, they bring all the old guys out, right? Uh, all the guys who have been president before, uh, to stand, as it were, in honor of the new man who is coming, or woman, uh, to, to lead our country. They have uh, bands playing. They have chief justices there to swear them in on this formal oath. It, it, is, it is a formal, solemn time where peaceably one man relinquishes rule over a nation to another one. Well, for all of the uh, importance and glory of all of these events throughout history, there is none that is both more simple and more profound the one that we have here in this text at Jesus' own inauguration of ministry. Here in the middle of the Jordan River, in the middle of a small country, in the backwater of the world, the triune God manifests himself in all three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit 
are on display for John to see as Jesus begins his public ministry. Can you imagine being him at that point? What an, what an amazing experience. You have before you the Son of God. You hear the Father's pronouncement of blessing upon him and his ministry and the empowering presence of God the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. Notice again this voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God declares that Jesus is his beloved Son. He is saying that he is well pleased with him. Now there is so much Old Testament going on there. We, we need to stop and unpack it. God is saying at one point that Jesus succeeds where Israel failed as his son. Throughout the Old Testament, in several places, Israel as a nation is called the son of God. But guess what? That son was never well-pleasing to God the Father because they never succeeded in their role as his son. They never lived up to what they were called to be. More than that, though, you'll remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God established his king. The people had their king. King Saul first. That was a failure. Forty years of, of misery and hardship, like he said, was going to come. Then God said, here's my man for the kingship, David. And the, the nation prospered spiritually more than it ever had before and more than it ever would after that. And God made a special promise to David, and he said, your line is my chosen line. Your son I will adopt as my son, and his kingdom will endure forever. And David was blown away and gave praise and worship to God as he should. What happened? David had a son named Solomon, and guess what? He failed. He failed. He died and went away just like his father did. And the line of David only pretty much gets worse after that. You have these high points of people, people like Josiah, this great reformer, who seek after God like David did, but none of their kingdom lasts forever. None of them are perfect. None of them are even as good as their father David. What we see is that here finally is David's greater son, Jesus himself. Here is the true Israel, Jesus himself. God is bringing together these streams of messianic promise. Here is the true son of God with whom God himself is pleased. But more than that, more than that, this well-pleasing individual is not just Israel incarnate. He's not just the son of David. Isaiah makes clear that when the Messiah comes, he will be a suffering servant. In Isaiah 42, God looks forward to the coming of this Messiah, and here's what he says. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. That's Hebrew for the Greek, with whom I am well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. In other words, he's not going to incite riot and war. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. In other words, those that are spiritually hungry yet miserably sick with sin, he will not just snuff them out. But rather he will treat them tenderly. The reed that is bruised but not quite broken, he will repair and allow to grow back. The, the, the wick that's about to be extinguished and just has a, a little bit of flame left there, he will blow on it and give it life again. In other words, he is merciful and tender to needy sinners. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. That servant with whom he is well pleased, that coming Messiah, is mentioned again and again in Isaiah until the prophecy climaxes in Isaiah 53 where the full measure of his suffering for his people is described. 
For many of you, the familiar words read out, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What God reveals at the outset of Jesus' ministry is that he is not just, he is not just the beloved son. He is also the faithful servant. He is the suffering servant who is going to come. This is who Messiah is. He's not just a king in the line of David, the true Israelite, but he is also the suffering servant. And these two things come together. He is a faithful servant, and that is what we see in chapter 4 of Matthew. The third thing, he is the faithful servant. The faithful servant. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Immediately after this baptism, we read, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Because Jesus was sinless all the days of his life, we read that. And I know when I was younger, and perhaps uh, you might as well, you might be tempted to think this temptation must not have been much of a temptation for him. I mean, he's sinless. He's perfect. He's the Son of God. How, How bad could it have been? But the problem is the Bible says we can't think that way. The Bible says explicitly the temptation that he endured here and throughout his life was real. Hebrews claims that he was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. Still we might say, well, how hard could it have been? But the problem with that thinking is that all of our temptations are secondhand. What do I mean by that? What I mean is everything that you've been tempted by, someone has already been tempted by before you. There's no, two, there's no new temptation for you. But here comes Jesus, who is a caliber above all of us. Satan has fresh meat, as it were, with which to experiment all of his maniacal devices of temptation. And Jesus endures them all. So, for us, it's all old hat. It's, old, it's all old tricks and games for the devil, and guess what? We usually give in pretty quick, unfortunately. But here's Jesus who endures and endures and endures and endures and endures. Which means, in my my thinking, the temptation gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse all the days of his life. To the point that even in his final, most glorious hour, he he is tempted to throw it all aside. Because he loves his father so much, he does not want to be cut off from him on the cross. And yet he prevails, sinless, to the end. The temptation was real. They were not old hat and they were difficult for him. In fact, well, what does it say here? After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, I bet he was hungry. Now again, we're tempted to think, well, nobody can go that long. That's got to be a miracle. How hungry could he have been? Well, here's the thing that I found out doing this. There, first of all, there's different types of fasts in, in the Bible as well as what people do today. There are some fasts where you take nothing in. No food, no water, nothing. Total fast. The more common fast in the Old Testament was a fast from food, but they still took water to keep, them, to, uh, to, to keep themselves going. And here's the thing. D.A. Carson tells us that there are records from, the prison, from a prison in Ireland where they practiced forced fasting as punishment for prisoners. And what they discovered is the, the longest amount of time a person can go having water but no food before permanent damage to health is done is 41 or 42 days. 
So it seems reasonable in my mind to think Jesus had water, but he took no food. And frankly, that makes sense because of the temptation that he was given. Think think about it. If you had gone for four days and four nights with no water and no food at all, and someone offered you bread, that would be the last thing I would want. I'd be like, give me water, right? Give me something to drink, okay? So he'd be like, nope, 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 you got water? That's a temptation. No, I think he's had water along, and if he's had water along and he says bread, that's what he's going to want, isn't it? Something with which to fill his empty stomach, his tired body. As we think about these things, we have to remember that Jesus wasn't the first son of God to be tempted in this way. Remember, Israel went down into, into Egypt, into captivity, and was called back out by Moses only to go through temptation in the wilderness for 40 years. Read Matthew chapter 2. Jesus is called into Egypt to escape the sword of Herod. He is called back out of Egypt and now has to endure temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. Again, he is identifying himself with his people, Israel, and we see he has come as the greater son, as the greater Israel. How is he tempted? The tempter comes to him and says, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice what Satan is doing. He has just heard the declaration from God. You are my son with whom I am well pleased. And now Satan comes and says, really? You're God's son? Then act like it. If you're really God's son, then act like it. If you're really his son, you don't need to be hungry. Turn these stones into bread. Like Israel before him, Jesus is being tempted to doubt God's goodness in the midst of difficulty. What do I mean? I mean this. It's easy to trust God when everything's going well, isn't it? When you have food on the table, it's easy to say, thanks be to God. When there's no food on the table, do you still say, thanks be to God? When you wrench your back or twist a knee and it's five months and there's still pain and you can't, you're, you're nowhere near being well, do you still say, thanks be to God? When your job is lost or a loved one dies, are you still saying, thanks be to God? Israel cried out to God, to any God who would listen in Egypt. And when the one true God, their God, rescued them out, displayed dramatically salvation by parting the Red Sea and destroying Pharaoh's coming army, as soon as their bellies rumbled, their hearts grumbled. As soon as they got hungry, they started saying, why did God bring us out here to die? We should go back to Egypt. And you're thinking, what are you thinking? You, 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 were, you were getting killed. You were getting slaughtered in Egypt. You are begging to get out. And just because your belly's a little empty, you want to go back and you think God's horrible? That he doesn't love you? Satan is tempting Jesus to do the same. He's tempting him to enjoy the privilege of being God's son without the path of suffering that is the defining mark of his ministry as the Messiah, a path that would ultimately lead to the cross. Frankly, he tempts us the same way. If God really loves you, he, he, your, your life would be better than it is. And we may not say it, but often we, often we think that. God, don't you really love me? Why are you letting this happen to me? How did Jesus respond? He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, he only gives us part of the verse. What does the whole text say? Listen to this. Moses told them back in Deuteronomy 8, you shall remember the whole... Now, now remember, here's what Deuteronomy 8 is. This is after the 40 years. This is where that generation has died off, and now they're getting ready to enter the promised land. Deuteronomy is a sermon, Moses' final sermon to the people of Israel, saying, remember, remember the last 40 years, and don't repeat the mistakes. 
He says, you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And he humbled you and let you, be, let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out on you. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as, man, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. You shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Jesus is saying, don't you know that God loves all his children and because he loves them, he lets them go hungry sometimes? He lets them endure pain sometimes? Because he loves them so much that he wants to let them know that the things of this world are not nearly as important as he is. That, that having a full belly and a warm body is not nearly as important as knowing the living God and being loved by him. Therefore, Jesus is saying it doesn't matter if it's easy. It is right to obey God because he is God. Because he is worth it. Jesus faced another temptation. Matthew says in verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city, that is Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their heads, uh, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quoted scripture at Satan. So Satan quotes scripture back at Jesus. But he twists it to be self-serving. He quotes from Psalm 91, which is written from the perspective of an Israelite who rejoices in the constant provision and protection that God gives to his people. And so Satan comes to him and he gives him uh, what can almost certainly be a vision uh, of of the the temple in Jerusalem, uh, uh, looking down from the peak about 300 feet in the air. And he says, jump. I mean, if 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 you leap off this temple, first of all, everyone's going to see you. God's not going to let his Messiah die. He's not going to let his son be killed. He's going to send angels to catch you and to, to let you down gently. Everybody will know you are the Messiah. So jump. Now what's the temptation here? The temptation is to display a faith in God that lacks reason or sanity. A completely irrational faith. The question is, when we, tr- when we believe God, when we trust him, do, do we actually follow him in faith seeking to do his will? Or do we think now we can just do whatever we want and he's going to take care of us? Essentially throwing ourselves off a cliff and saying, save me God, save me. Are we trying to understand the Bible and God's word on its terms? Or do we twist it to excuse whatever we want to do? For example, I recently heard about a man who was a missionary in London, in, uh, in the Soho district. Apparently it's a... It's a a pretty raunchy, sleazy part of town, and he's worked there for over 30 years, and he says, even now, after 30 years of service, there are some parts of the city I will never go to alone. Not because he's afraid of what someone's going to do to him, but what he may be tempted to do. Now, you can imagine the rationale in some people's minds. Well, God, I'm your servant. I'm doing your work. I've been here 30 years. I'm going to go right into those shops, and I'm going to go right up to those people and in those clubs, and you're going to protect me. He says, not on your life. That's not wise. That's not a sane faith. That is temptation waiting to terminate my faithful years of ministry. I will not put the Lord to the test that way. Imagine a man enslaved to alcohol for 30 years who just became sober. And two days later, he says, I'm going to go into a bar and tell people about Christ. What is he doing? He's putting God to the test. He is displaying an irrational faith. 
He is asking for God to do something supernatural to prove his presence and his life. And here again was a failure of Israel. Exodus 17, the water supply was running low and the people demanded Moses give them water. Give us water. And Moses said, where do you already get it from? There's none around here. And their response was basically, well, is God with us or not? He's done miracles before. Have him do a miracle again. If he really loves us, he'll do a miracle. And Moses says, they were, God says, they were putting me to the test. They were putting me to the test. But Jesus doesn't put God to the test. He doesn't need any miraculous sign as a proof of God's love. And the question for us is, do we? Do we need a miraculous sign to prove God's love for us? If you think, well, maybe, what I would do is, is point you back to what we're going to see in a few weeks. In Jesus' atoning work on the cross, what more evidence do you need of God's love for you? He sends his own son to stand in your place and bear the wrath you deserve for your sin that you might be forgiven and know him and loved by him. If you ever doubt God's love for you, look to the cross. Satan comes a final time. This time he goes for the gusto. Before he's asked Jesus to do things that aren't inherently sinful, I mean, later on he will display his glory in miracles, won't he? Later on he will, he will miraculously create food where there is none for himself and for his followers, but it's the, it's the context that makes those things wrong at that moment. But now he's not messing around. There's no subtlety to this temptation. He just goes straight for it. He gives him another vision, this time of all the world's kingdoms. Verse 8. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Again, we're not disputing what Matthew says here, but just in terms of our own minds, it's got to be visionary. I don't care how high of a mountain you're on, you can't see all the nations of the world. Satan is supernaturally projecting these things before Jesus. Now he says to him in verse 9, that is, Satan says to Jesus, All of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. This is nothing less than the temptation to break the first commandment. Not to have any other gods before God. If Jesus will simply fall down and worship Satan, then he will give Jesus authority over the nations. In effect, he is saying, worship me and you don't have to go to the cross. That's the path of glory that your father has laid out for you. But if you follow my path to glory, you don't have to go through the suffering. You don't have to go through the cross. You don't have to to, to be here for the next three years. You can have it all now. The temptation is to shortcut his ministry as the promised Messiah by breaking apart his fulfillment as the son of David and his fulfillment of the suffering servant. He's tempting Jesus to have all the praise and prestige of being the Lord of the nations without the agony and pain of the atonement if he will simply bow down and worship his father's rival. Isn't this the very thing that Israel failed at again and again and again? Like an unfaithful bride who keeps turning up in the beds of other men, so God calls Israel a spiritual adulteress who keeps going after other gods and other gods and other gods, giving her worship to them. And aren't we prone to do the same thing? I mean, we don't set up astral poles and, and, and get, get, get little idols. Most of us, anyway, that claim the name of Christ don't. Uh, you go into a Hindu home and you're going to see all kinds of weird things scattered around the room. But, but as Christians, we, we have no graven images, but we still worship idols, don't we? We still put things in place of God. That might be our reputation. We were supposed to do something at work and we forgot. What are we going to do? Are you going to face the music? You're going to tell a little lie. I never got that memo. That email never came through. 
what have we done? We've just put our reputation before God because God says, don't lie. Tell the truth. I'm a God of truth. If you're, if you're one of my people, you tell the truth. Perhaps, perhaps we put our children before God. God says, parent this way. Teach your kids to do these things. Raise them to be my people, not just clones of yourself. And we don't do that. And we spoil them. We give them what we think they need, what we think is best. And they become a higher priority than God is in our life. And we can go on and on and on. I mean, basically any good thing that God has given us into this world, we can turn into an idol. What does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Jesus knows that Satan can never really give what he offers. It seems like the path of line is the way to go. It seems like we know what's best for our kids. But the reality is Satan can never give what he offers. And in fact, all we get is misery and the loss of our own soul. And Jesus knows that. He says to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall love the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He simply won't have any of Satan's proposal. God and God alone stands at the center of all things and Jesus knows that. Do we know that? If we know that, then our lives will be centered around God. Here's the reality, friends. The first and most basic sin, the first and most basic sin is not loving, serving, obeying, and worshiping God. Everything, everything else flows out of that. This is why when the rich young ruler, do you remember he comes up to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus says, keep, keep the commandments. And he says, I've done all of those things from birth. In other words, he's telling him, basically, keep the Ten Commandments. And this guy says, I kept them all. Ever since I was little, I've kept them all. And Jesus knows about this guy. He, he, he taps into the divine omniscience to know something of this man's character. He knows what's in this man's heart. So he tells him, great, you'll have to do one more thing. Sell everything you have and follow me. And we're told the man went away sad because he was very rich. The man said, I have kept all the commands. And Jesus says, you haven't even kept the first command. Your wealth is your God. And yet even in that, Jesus, it says, he loved him and was sorrowful, sorrowful when he went away. You know, God is not up there as, as this, as this uh, you know, angry old judge just waiting to squash out sin. Even with the... the, the the, the doctrine of divine sovereign election. We are told throughout the scriptures that he has a stance of love and willingness to save towards everyone. Towards everyone. Therefore, we should too. We should too. The question is though, is God the center of our lives? Do we acknowledge him and him alone? Carson splashes a bucket of cold water in our face when he says this. God does not exists to bless us not in the first instance we were made for him by his will we were made and for his glory if if we would just know that and believe that and live that our lives would be totally different jesus knew it though and his life displayed it jesus was the righteous substitute he was the beloved son he was the faithful servant and that makes him lastly the universal savior now, surely there, there is something to learn here. We have, we have already just hinted at it on how to face temptation ourselves. 
we could read through this and, and, and understand what it means to uh, more, uh, we could better understand what it means to trust God each and every day, even in pain, seeing his great blessings, obeying him with joy. There's much to learn about filling our minds up with scripture so we have something to throw at temptation when it comes at us. But there is a larger point that we must not miss in this text. We simply cannot miss the display of perfection in Christ's ministry as our Savior. Israel failed before God as his son and his servant, yet Jesus came as the fulfillment of the promise for a perfect son and a perfect servant. Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. He is the new, true Israel. More than that, we're not Israelites, and yet we have failed in every way before God, and he has succeeded in our place as well. For Paul tells us in Romans 5 that Christ isn't just a new Israel, Christ is a new Adam. Think about Chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis and what we see before us. Adam was created in perfect relationship with God, put into a lush garden, given a helper to be with him, every imaginable blessing with which to fill his life, body, and soul, yet he failed to trust God. Here's Jesus who begins in the wilderness, alone, without food, and succeeded in trusting God. The first Adam sinned and brought down the human race with him. The second Adam prevails and secures our redemption. Thus Christ begins his ministry by cutting already a new path for a new humanity. Christ is not just the perfect savior for Israel. He is the perfect savior for all humanity. By identifying with sinners at his baptism, he is beginning his long journey to the cross where he will go so far as to stand in their place and bear all of God's holy wrath against their sin. And by his victory in the wilderness through temptation, he is beginning to live a righteous life that would culminate in a complete righteousness that would be counted for us who trust in him as Savior that we might stand righteous before God. Christ came in fulfillment of the promises of God made, and even now he stands ready, the scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter 7, he stands ready to save to the uttermost all who would look to him in faith. This very day he stands ready to receive sinners who would look to him, who like those that John called out before would acknowledge, I am sinful and I need a savior, and that only savior is Christ. He says, come to me. And I will give you spiritual rest. Because I have gone on before you. I have fought the battles and I have won. And therefore you can be right with God. Dear Christian brother and sister who, who have put faith in Christ, you may stand this morning wearied in your life because of sin. Dismayed because of the circumstances of your life and your, seemingly, your seeming inability to fight well. Understand Jesus has fought the battle for you. And when you go again and again and again and see that and understand that and rest in that, you yourselves will have strength to get up, to wield the sword, and to fight the fight of faith and win victory over sin. Therefore, regardless of who you are this morning, Christ stands at the center of all things, of all that God has planned for this world as your perfect Savior. Father, we are thankful for Christ. We are thankful for your gift of him to us. God, may we not cast him aside, believing that we are sufficient in and of ourselves. Help us to know that when it comes to our walk with you, he is all that we have. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.